day of study and talk, uh, that, uh, that your spirit would be here in this room, that you would help us to hear your voice. Lord, as we're going to engage a little bit this morning with the way we read your word, the way we read the Bible, Lord, I pray that you would help us to <clears throat> help us to, to take on and to challenge and to think deeply about the way we approach this book that you've given us, this precious gift that we call the Bible. Lord, I, I, I pray that you would give us insight, deep understanding, ability to see things from new angles. Give us the grace to hear you, even in spite of uh, ways that we've thought and operated in the past. Holy Spirit, lead and guide. Pray that anything that's not of you would not remain, but that whatever is inspired by your Holy Spirit would live in our hearts this morning. Do what you want to do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, like I said, today, um, uh, the normal flow of this class is we're going to pick portions of Scripture and we are going to walk verse by verse through those portions of Scripture. I think it is an absolutely key and important way of uh, of, of studying the scripture. I think it opens us up to new understanding. I'd love to go slowly through. I mean, uh, in, in years past, we have just studied Romans the entire year. Or, uh, you know, we have spent multiple months on, and, we'll, and I don't know what, I, I don't know how this is going to go because I always just move at the pace that makes sense to the class and to the Holy Spirit. But, uh, the, but when we go through the Beatitudes, which will probably be the next thing we do unless the Holy Spirit has something else in mind, you know, that, that we might take one week per Beatitude. That may be a thing that we do. And the Beatitudes are like one verse, maybe two at the most, but we're going to spend an hour and a half on each one. Because there is stuff, there are things to be, to, there's gold in them thar hills. Uh, there is stuff to find. There is treasure in God's word that 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 requires you to to move slowly with it. Um, the way that uh, uh, in the in the Old Testament, the way that God talked to His people says, "Let this word, let this word that you hear today, let it be in your uh, in your head. Let it be in your heart. Let it be in your mouth." And the literal word there is to chew it. Just that 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 he says you should talk about it when you're when you're uh, uh, when you should be thinking about it when you lay down at night. You should be thinking of it when you wake up in the morning. You should be talking about it over your dinner tables. You should wear it bound on your forehead and on your arms or whatever. And and Orthodox Jews to this day roll up scriptures and put them in what are called phylacteries, which live on like their little like scripture cases that actually live that they wear and if you've ever seen 
an Orthodox Jewish person with his prayer shawl with like a leather thing wrapped around his arm. That's what that is. He's, he's taking that scripture seriously. Bind this word to your bodies, etc. <clears throat> and uh, actually, well, we'll talk about that maybe later. But, uh, but um, no, I, ha I had a guy that was, he had just, I want to save it. I want to save it. We'll save it for later. This is because it's a really good example of something I want to talk about today. But anyway, bind this word to your bodies. You know, hold it. You know, the the uh, the the this picture. Uh, most Jewish families will have a a, uh, a a little container on their doorpost when they walk into the house, and many of them, as they come in the door, they'll kiss their fingers and then touch it because in there is. Uh, certain portions of scripture are just are written out and then wrapped up tightly and put inside these little things because it was important to them. <clears throat> and I and I want we should be the same way. We should have the word of God. We should have this. We should have the scriptures saturating every part of who we are. Yeah. Is I looked up a picture of that thing you're talking about. Yeah. Orthodox Jews and something like that. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm talking. It looks like yeah. it wraps around all the way around it does, there. Because either because they will either have it. See this box here on his forehead. Yeah. That's got scripture in it, and then this is wrapped around his arm. Actually, has scripture written on it as well. Oh. But then there's another box here around his neck. I saw that other box. Yeah. This is that's what they would do. They would they would they still do that to this day. But they did it all the way back then, because in Exodus, when the covenant was given to them, God made these statements. Now, one of the things we're going to talk about today is when do we take the Bible literally and when do we not? In this particular case, I don't think God was telling them, hey, take some words, write them on a piece of paper, put them in a box and tie it to your wrist. I don't think God was saying that. I just, I don't. But they are taking scripture literally there where I think God was speaking figuratively but that's something we can argue about. And that's quite, from seeing that picture, that's quite literal. Well, yeah, and Jesus had a problem with it, too. Jesus talked about people making their phylacteries wide. Okay, he talked about the Pharisees. Because what's the point of the thing wrapping all the way up your arm? That's a good question, because I don't see no point in that. No. The point is so people can see it. It's about show, not about... The reality of taking that word and making it a part of your life. Oh, so it's just like a look at me type of thing? Yes. <laughs> and that Jesus had a real problem with that. He said he said that the Pharisees run around all the time being incredibly outwardly pious, but inside their their hearts are just cold as stone. They don't love me at all. Anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit. Well, it isn't Yes. The, what Jesus wants from us is he wants a reality that exists on the inside that makes its way out. So, yeah. We probably, people will appear passionate about God's word because they actually are. Does that make sense? Not just because they want to appear passionate. 
one thing to tie it on the outside. Does it live in here first? If it lives in here first, then tie it on the outside all you want. But if it doesn't live in here first, then don't pretend it does by tying it to your wrist and your forehead. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's a picture of it. I put it in the group text for you guys to have better understanding. So, all right. That's how, that's what we're going to do most of the time in this class. And we'll have lots of talk and discussion, right, about stuff like that. Tomorrow we start our Enneagram study. I'm excited about that. Okay, <clears throat> but, no, you're not. <laughs> but, but not, I'm sorry, it's just going to be the first years. Uh, <clears throat> but, um, but today I, I, I want to set... I want to spend today talking about how we study and read the Bible. And I, and I, I want to spend some time kind of setting a, a tone for the way that we're going to explore the scripture as we move forward. Okay? Last week, we talked about the most important thing, and we're going to rem or we'll be reminded of that today as a part of this. The most important thing is what? Somebody tell me what we talked about last week. God. God, thanks. That's that is that is a great. That's not. I don't even know if that. I mean, did, how much did we talk about God? Yeah, we talked about because we talked about how we don't follow the word of we don't follow the Bible. We follow the person who wrote the Bible. Sure. Well, kinda. But the one, yeah, who who gave us the Bible. We'll talk about uh, inspiration today a little bit, but we follow Christ. Christ is the word of God. And I, and I am trying. It's difficult for me because I grew up in this environment where, you know, preachers would pick up a Bible and be like, this is the word of God. Right? And that's what you, you know. Are you with me? Okay. You feel the anointing on that right there? Just the longer you take to say the word God, the more anointed you are. Um, <clears throat> no, that... that but I was, in, I was in my car one time, this is years and years ago, uh, before I was a full in full-time ministry, and, and, I, and I, uh, I had, my Bible was sitting on, on my, the passenger seat of my car, and I was driving some to work, and, and, I, and I was talking to the Father, and I was, I was like, I, Lord, help me to spend more time in your word. And God said to me, what, that book there? And I was like, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. He goes, oh, that's not my word. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? Because, uh, you know, I feel like I'm dabbling in some heresy if I really believe you. And, and he was like, oh, no, no, no. That's scripture and it's inspired by me and that's very true, and it's a precious gift that I've given to you, and I want you to spend a ton of time in it. But that's not my word. Jesus is the word of God. My son is my word. He's the word. Capital T, capital W. That book, that beautiful, wonderful, absolutely necessary book inspired by the Holy Spirit, that book is a lot of things, but it's not my word. So if you are entering into that book to encounter the living word, then fine. Great. Do that all day. But if you're just reading it because you think it's like magic somehow, 
then throw it away because it's not going to help. If you are just reading it, okay, I saw a movie once, I think it was called The Apostle, where this guy, the, the, there's these people, this church hadn't paid its bills, and so they walk outside and there's, a, there's literally a, there's literally a bulldozer coming to bulldoze the church. And the preacher comes out and puts his Bible down in front of the bulldozer and, and, the, and everybody stands there and says, you can't move the word. You can't move the word. And then finally the guy behind the thing was just like, forget it. And he got out of the bulldozer and walked away. Okay. The Bible's not like that. It's not magic. It's not magic. Can I say this again? It's not magic. I, you know, people used to yell at me. I'm going to borrow your Bible for just a minute. People used to yell at me because I used to write all over the inside of my Bible constantly. Just, you know, like my whole Bible was full of notes and whatever, which I don't even use a physical Bible hardly at all anymore because, you know, Indeed. I just don't. I, I'm, I'm, I'm on my phone. I'm on my computer. I'm everywhere else. I hardly ever use a physical Bible. I have 18 of them, but I just don't. And they would kind of, it's Or like you hear a story about somebody that, like, you know, there there were there were rock and roll musicians who would like take the Bible and like take pages out of it and use it as toilet paper as kind of a start kind of a thing. You'd be like, <gasps> you know, it's paper with leather on the outside and there's ink on the pages. The thing, it's not sacred. It's not. The words, the text. All of that inspired by the Holy Spirit, wonderful and good. But that physical object that we call the Bible, it is, oh, it's, I can't tell you how much I adore it. I don't want you to think that I'm down on the Bible in any way, shape, or form. I adore it. My whole life is absolutely saturated. I told you last week, I wake up, what's the first thing I do? I'm pulling up my Bible reading plan as I'm laying in bed. I have this, like, I have this arm thing that connects to my nightstand that holds my iPad mini over my face. It's awesome. I love it. And I lay in bed and, and, and read. <laughs> I don't have to hold it like this, right? It's so great. I love it. It's just amazing. And I just lay in bed and read. And, and yeah, that's usually how I fall asleep at night is, is I'm reading a book or something and then I fall asleep and then. Like, yeah. Anyway, my wife hates it. She's like, stupid thing hanging over my bed all the time. It's like, I love it. It's so great. Anyway, so I, yeah. I love the Bible, but we have made it something it's not. And we're not doing good things for it or for ourselves when we make it something it's not. Okay. That's what last week was about. Jesus is the one we worship. Jesus is the one we follow. And Jesus is the one who is forming us into his image as we're transformed from glory to glory, as we catch glimpses of the beautiful God, usually through the Bible. But it is the glimpse of God that is changing us, not the book itself. Are you with me? Does this make sense? Jesus talked to the Pharisees. This is one of my all-time favorite scriptures. Is Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, You study the scriptures day after day because you think that in them you will find salvation. 
but you refuse to come to me and find life. There's a whole lot of people who think the Bible is their salvation and the Bible is not your salvation. Now, there's no way you could have found out what your salvation was without the Bible, and so thank the Lord, and it makes sense why we would do that. But Jesus is the one who saves. The living, active, human, he's also fully God, but he is fully human, seated at the right hand of the Father, even now whoever lives to make intercession for you. It is his blood, his life, his spirit in you that, may, that brings you from darkness into light. In fact, the Bible tells us we can't understand what the Bible even says without the Holy Spirit to help us to understand it. Is everybody with me this morning? Can you, can you um, explain that a little bit when you say we can't understand what the Bible is without the Holy Spirit to understand it? Right. Um, well, let me think. Where? I'm going to have to look it up now. I think I have an this idea what Paul. you're talking about, but I want to make sure I'm thinking the right thing. Uh, the Apostle Paul, my good buddy. First Corinthians chapter 2. The person without the Spirit, capital S, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Okay, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Okay, so we, can't, we can read the Bible, but we cannot fully understand it until the very Spirit who inspired those scriptures brings us the understanding. Let me give you an example. Okay, from the scripture. Remember after Jesus died and rose from the dead, that, they were, that they were, there were disciples who were walking to Emmaus, right? And they were walking to Emmaus, and Jesus, resurrected Jesus, comes up and walks next to them and says, Oh, you guys look sad. What's wrong? And they're like, Well, where have you been? What are you talking about? Are you crazy? Did you, did you just wake up yesterday like what you know that we're upset because jesus is dead and he's like wow tell me about this jesus guy so they started talking a little bit about jesus jesus was purposefully hiding himself from them okay by the way almost every encounter anyone had with the resurrected jesus they didn't recognize him at first so it's either because he was so scarred from his Thing, or because he's so different because he's in a resurrection body now, or because we don't really know. The Bible doesn't really say, but they didn't recognize him at the time. Maybe he was, um, maybe he was kind of like um, te testing their faith a little bit, like their witness well, to see if he was telling the truth. I think it's more than that, and we'll talk about that here in a second. So they're walking together, they, the, and the people say to him, "Well, we thought he was the Messiah." But he's dead, so he's obviously not the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, Oh, you fool, you slow of heart to believe all that God has said and done. And they're like, what? And so then he walks them through the scriptures. And the Bible says he opened the scriptures to them and began to show them 
in the Old Testament why the, why the Messiah had to suffer and die. He began to lay it out for them. This is Jesus preaching Jesus. Helping them to understand. And when they got to the, like they got a, a ways down the road, it was getting dark. You don't stay on the road in the dark at this time. So they said they went to a little hotel there and they were going to stay the night there. And they invited Jesus, come stay with us. And Jesus said, okay. And they go inside and then Jesus takes the bread and blesses it. And when he does, when he tears the bread and prays a blessing, all of a sudden, they recognize him. Oh, it's Jesus, right? Like, they just, what? Right now, some people have said that it's because this is the first time that Jesus would have, like, stretched out his hands and they would have seen the scars. I don't think that's it at all because I think this is what's going on. This is how we encounter Jesus, through the scriptures and the breaking of the bread. Jesus is revealed to us by Jesus as he opens up the scripture to show us who he is. And then we step into a place of encounter with him and with each other at the breaking of the bread. And then we see him. Our eyes are open. Wow. There he is. Now, I've been listening to this guy named Father John Bear. He is, he is a, an Eastern Orthodox uh, theologian. Um, and I'm just getting to know him a little bit. Uh, he did, man, he's an expert on John, and uh, that's where this story is found. And he talks about, he says, why did Jesus disappear? Because that's what happened. As soon as they recognized him, he disappears. Boom. Why did Jesus disappear once they recognized him? Why didn't he hang around and continue the conversation? Are you ready for this? Because in recognizing Jesus, in believing in him, they have become his body, and his physical presence is no longer needed. Isn't that crazy? I don't know if I believe that yet or not, but I think it's really interesting. That in stepping into that place of belief and saying, yes, this is who he is, this is what he did, they became the body of Christ like we are and so jesus not needed on the scene any longer i think that's interesting okay i'm i'm, I'm just having fun with that but any questions at this point so today anybody anything i would really i want this to be as much of a conversation as we can make it so that means that you have to talk to yeah Yeah. After, um, like, do you think, like, Jesus, like, hides himself from us until, like, a certain standpoint and where we're ready to, like, accept the part he wants to show us? Absolutely. This is, this is why Father Bear was telling that story is because he talks a lot about veiling and unveiling and how veiling and unveiling is necessary for communication and it's necessary for relationships. He says it like this. This is deep stuff, and I am totally stealing it all from Father John Bear, okay? But here's the thing. Okay, when you look at a word, do you see letters or do you see a word? I'm asking, yeah. 
I see a word. I don't usually read the letters, like T-H-E. Okay? I, I don't see that. I don't see T-H-E, I see the. Right? Okay, so, but if I'm going to communicate to you, I have to take a wordless reality that's going on in the inside of me and encode it. Right? I have to veil it in words. I have to encode it in words. And then those words hopefully encapsulate my meaning and go across to you and you can you take that word and you open it again and you hopefully have received what I have tried to send. But it's only through a conversation between me and you. It's only as we talk, which is why it's really important when you're having a conversation with someone to reflect back to them what you just heard, especially if it's a very important conversation. So they say something to you, this is, this is how I feel, this is what I want you to know, and then you say, okay, this is what I just heard you say. Because it's entirely possible that you have not heard them correctly or they have not communicated well. And we, say, we would save ourselves a ton Especially if we were offended by what they said. <gasps> Normally, we turn around and go, fine, we'll screw you. Right? And we just kind of walk off. Or we don't. We just get we just get quietly hurt on the inside. And then we go over here and we talk to somebody else. Depends which Enneagram number you are. But we'll find out about that. <clears throat> For instance... I had a conversation with a leader at our church, okay? And I left that conversation going, well, I'm really glad that conversation happened. I needed to say some things, some, some of this stuff to her. And that was an important communication. And wow, I'm glad. You know, so I, I went away from that conversation feeling good. She went away from that conversation really, really discouraged and upset. And she talked to one of her friends, which is also one of my friends, about how discouraged and upset she was. And she said to her, she said, I don't know what I don't know what Pastor Josh is thinking. I don't even understand why would he come. And her friend, which is also my friend, said to her, "I think you should probably go back and talk to Josh about this because I don't know if you heard him right. Because I can't see Josh ever saying what you just told me he said." And then her friend, which is also my friend, called me and said, "I just had a conversation with this person." I'm a little worried that they misunderstood you. You should probably talk to her. So I gave her a call. Hey, I heard that you went away from our conversation upset. Can you reflect back to me what you heard me say? We ended up having an hour and a half conversation, which was really, really good. Where I helped her to see that on Titans, oh, that is not what I miscommunicate at all. I'm so sorry. This is what I was trying to say. And because of that, we're still friends and we work well together still. But if that conversation hadn't happened, that second conversation, she'd probably still be mad at me and she probably would have left the church. Because what she heard me say was the exact opposite of what I actually meant to say. Okay, veiling and unveiling. We have to veil because we don't have telepathy. So we can't just be like, Feel my feelings, right? We can't do that. Wouldn't that be nice to be able to just, just communicate 
the exact state of your innards to someone else just in a flash just now you got me right i got you okay then it would that would be great wouldn't it but we can't do that we don't have that capability so we have to take that and try somehow to put it in this code we call words that's a veiling of it and then they have to try to unveil it and see based on what we sent them what we meant and that is exactly how we have to, that is exactly how the Bible works as well. God is trying to communicate with humans. And the ways that God has chosen to communicate with humans, the final and greatest and best way was, gee, he came himself and walked amongst us as one of us and, and showed forth the perfect image of the Father, which is what we talked about last week. But we, and now we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and so... Jesus said, you know, you'll have no more need of a teacher because the Holy Spirit's going to live inside of you and he's going to guide you into all truth. Which we don't trust that at all, by the way. We're really bad at trusting that. We have not learned to cultivate how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. I think this should be the number one class that everyone takes the minute that they get saved. How to hear the Holy Spirit. And maybe that's, maybe we'll have that class sometime. How do we know when it's the voice of the Spirit? How do we hear the voice of the Spirit? How do we learn to trust the voice of the Spirit? How do we know the difference between my spirit and the Holy Spirit? How do we know the difference between my flesh and my spirit and the Holy Spirit? How do we know the difference between the devil and my spirit and the Holy Spirit? How do we know the difference between just I'm, I'm just listening to my own securities and I'm listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit? These are huge things. And it is radically important that people who want to follow Jesus learn how to discern when the Holy Spirit is speaking to them, what that sounds like and what that looks like. And we begin to make it the practice of our life to have ears wide open to what the Holy Spirit is saying at all times. But that's not what we're going to spend our time on today. Okay, today we're going to talk about the Bible and how we read the Bible and five essentials. Five essentials we need to remember every time we open up that book, okay? So I want you to write these down. This should be the second class that we take as when, when we, uh, when we, after we get saved. And number one, how to hear the voice of the Spirit. Number two, how to read the Bible. Okay? Five essentials. Number one, the Bible is inspired. I'm required by my Assembly of God credentials to begin the conversation there. That was a joke. I didn't mean that. That is really number one. We need to understand that the Bible is inspired. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I'm going to read it again. 2 Timothy 3.16. So think John 3.16. This is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Quick question, friends. What did Paul mean by the words all scripture?
Anybody? Did Bueller? He mean, did he mean the inspired parts of the Bible? or? Um, well, I mean, if it's not inspired, it's not the Bible. Or did he mean like his epistles? Or ah, epistles that's the question. That's what I'm asking you. What did he mean when he says all scripture? Somebody tell me. Come on now. What's the only scripture they had? Correct. All, all they had was the, the Hebrew Bible. Okay, that which we refer to as the Old Testament. But I don't want to use that word anymore. I don't like that word. What? Huh? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's the, the only scripture they had. What's that? Go ahead. So this one reminds me of like something that was talked about a couple like a first a couple of years. Yeah. When he says like oh like like I don't remember it all in the topic, but like how they're deciding the Bible and like what books are in the Bible. We're gonna get there. So are those scriptures inspired too? That's a great question. <laughs> oh, that's such a great question. That's what we need to think about. Okay. No, I'm not saying the New Testament isn't inspired scripture. The church has operated that way and believed that for the last 2,000 years, that the New Testament is absolutely vital to following Jesus. But the Apostle Paul's not talking about the New Testament here. He's talking about the Old Testament. I just think it's I just think it's important that you keep that in your head. That every single time the word scripture is mentioned in the actual scripture, it's talking about Old Testament, not New. I'm not devaluing the New Testament in any way, shape, or form. But I but I'm here's my goal. I if you're anything like me, how many of you grew up in the church? Yes. How many of you grew up in an evangelical church like the Assemblies of God? Yes, okay. So all of you probably view the Bible the same way I did. And my goal is to take that frame through which you have viewed the Bible all this time and smash it to a thousand pieces. That's my goal. I want to reframe the Bible for you because that frame is not good enough. The frame I grew up with, the frame that I had my whole life until maybe 10 years ago, not good enough. It's not, period. It is a cultural frame that was given to us not by the Bible, but by modern ways of teaching and understanding the Bible, and it's not good enough. And I want to reframe the Bible. Or at least I want to let you know that you have a frame through which you're viewing the Bible. That would be good enough for me. That you need to understand there's other ways to think about this book. And maybe they're better than the one that, you're, that you have right now. Okay, this is my primary goal is to show you your paradigms. Anybody know what a paradigm is? Can somebody, can somebody uh, give me a definition of the word paradigm? No? Okay, this is an important word and I will probably use it a lot. Okay, your paradigm is the way you see the world, the way you think about the world. It is your worldview. It is, it is the lens through which you view everything, including the Bible, and politics, and, and, and. Okay, and your paradigm, most of us just accept that paradigm as that's just the way the world is. 
We just accept our native paradigm as being the only way to see the world, but we are wrong. Nobody sees the world perfectly other than God. And we need to be able to understand what our paradigm is so that Jesus can mess with our paradigm because what we want is a, we want to be as close to the way that God sees the world as possible. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Okay? And that's my goal. My goal is to at least show you that you have a paradigm because most people are not aware especially people of your age. I love you, and I'm not, I'm not picking on you as young people. I'm not. But most people, especially people of your age group, uh, uh, are not yet aware of the fact that you have a specific way, a paradigm through which you encounter the world, and that maybe other people have different paradigms than you. I feel like the age that you're in, and by the way, I'm not talking about Generation Z or Millennial or any every single generation has felt this way because that's what it means to be in your late teens early 20s what's happening at that time in brain development is that you are becoming able to understand abstract concepts which you were not able to do before you were about 17 18 years old girls are able to do it earlier than guys Your brain was not capable of understanding abstract concepts and thinking in abstract concepts until you're maybe 18, 19 years old, okay? Which is why people go to college and lose their faith, because they've had one paradigm their entire life, and they go to college and find out there are other paradigms in the world, and they don't have anybody there to say, just because you're seeing the world differently doesn't mean that Jesus, that, that, the things that were given to you when you were a kid about Jesus are not helpful, important, and true. And people lose their grid, and therefore they lose Jesus. And that's a shame. It is really a shame. But Jesus, for me, is the anchor to which I am connected that keeps me safe and strong, even as the whole world flips and turns and whatever. My paradigm can shift all day long because Jesus stays the same and he's my anchor. I've decided to connect myself to Christ, to trust his solidity, to build my house upon the rock, to use more familiar words. And no, no matter what happens outside of that, I am on stable ground. Does that make sense? The Bible is inspired. So by the way, that stable ground, it's not the Bible. <gasps> How many times did you in Sunday school when you, you know, uh, wise man built his house upon the rock. Anybody else? That song? Wise man built his house upon the rock. How many times have, have you been told that the rock you were to build your life on was God's word? The, the rock you're building your life on is Jesus Christ. I've actually had a pastor hold the book like this and say, the wise man builds his house on the rock. 
Shock, right? Anybody ever seen that? Have that, that one? <coughs> right there? People do it with the Bible. The, the, that's the, it, that's this is it. They're building the house right here. This right here, this book, this is not the rock that our lives are built on. Jesus Christ is the rock that our, built, that our lives are built on. And that book leads us and shows us Jesus, but it is not Jesus. Okay, I've said that enough times. You guys have got that. Okay. The Bible is inspired. What does it mean that the Bible is inspired? Somebody tell me what you think it means that the Bible is inspired. Go. Um, the, in, the Bible is inspired. TBQ and JBQ question. Um, it is inspired because God spoke to certain people what he wanted them to write in the Bible. Ooh. No. <laughs> oh. oh, that's that's gross. Okay. <clears throat> I don't mean to be mean, Ross. I love fine. you. You know that, right? Yeah. Okay. If you, if you didn't pick on me, I'd wonder if you, if you liked me. And I'm not really picking on you. I'm picking on that. That is a horribly worded answer to that question. I know you didn't write it. That's what you I know, but that is terrible. If that is our biblical view of inspiration, we're all in trouble. Because that is a picture of God kind of like coming along and sitting down next to Peter or Paul or, or Isaiah or, or uh, David or somebody and saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to write this down. Write this down. In, no, in the beginning, God created, right? Isn't that what to the picture you got? I did, yes. That is not how it worked at all. It's not how it worked in any way, shape, or form. That is not even close to what inspiration is much more nuanced, much deeper, much more interesting, and much more scary and scandalous than that. Inspiration is this weird, this strange, holy dance that God does with his people. Inspiration is an entirely different thing than that. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 1, 21. I'll read it again. I thought I'd put that verse in my notes, but I haven't. 2 Peter 1, 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of inspiration. Okay. Here's how it works. The Holy Spirit comes and surrounds a human heart and begins to breathe on a human author. And that human author steps in by faith into cooperation with the Holy Spirit to begin to write. But they're not zapped. They're not given every single word as though it were like God sitting next to them, dictating to the, dictating to, anybody a Monty Python fan? Monty Python, the Holy Grail. Anytime I say the word dictating, I think of them when they're in the cave, and he says, the Grail is found in the castle, 
Uh. He's like, what? He must have died while carving it. And the guy says, he wouldn't have bothered to carve out. Uh, he just would have died. And the guy says, perhaps he was dictating. That's my favorite line in the whole thing. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, Monty Python, big fan. Okay, so the castle. Uh, that's God was not dictating the word to the author. That's not how it worked. God inspired. God lends spiritual authority to the author. God gives them a glimpse of truth and reality, which then is faithfully carried forth into the writing. But the, it is the author's words. They are, it is the author's worldview comes across. And the author's misunderstanding of things. Oh my goodness, I'm going to get myself in trouble. There is stuff in the Bible. That's not true. I know, Could I know. You're all going to throw rocks at me. My wheels are turning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to leave it there and walk out. There's stuff in the Bible that's not true. Hey, have a nice day, everyone. <laughs> there are scientific facts that are just assumed by the authors of the, of the Bible at different times. I'm not talking about Genesis. We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay? Facts about animals, places, people, etc., that have nothing to do with the particular story that is being told, that doesn't in any way affect the truth that's being communicated, but that is incorrect. Sometimes it's a date, sometimes it's a whatever. Let me give you a for instance. Okay? Remember, oh, I'm going to have to find this too because I wasn't planning on talking about this too. I think it's in Romans. Well, I'll just, I can't find it right now. So I don't remember the exact wording. The Apostle Paul is writing to, uh, to Timothy. It's in Timothy. I know that for a fact. It's in Timothy. The Apostle Paul is writing to him, and he says, and for that sake, I'm glad I never baptized anybody while I was there. That's what he says first. And then the next, and then he goes, well, maybe I did baptize this person. And then the next he says, oh, yeah, and I baptized that person and that person. But other than that, I didn't baptize anybody. Okay. So that first statement that Paul made, is that correct or incorrect? I never baptized anyone while I was there. Is that statement correct or incorrect? It's incorrect. It's not true. <gasps> That's something in the Bible. It's not true. Oh, no. What are we going to do? If you believe that God sat next to Paul and gave him word, 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 then that part of the Bible makes no sense whatsoever. Because Paul obviously was speaking off the top of his head, and we know that Paul dictated his letters because there's one place where he actually takes the paper and writes in his own hand. He's like, look at these huge letters I use when I write in my own hand. So we know Paul was dictating. Uh, we know. Okay. And here's Paul, and you imagine the scribe going, Paul... This is in ink, <laughs> right? Plus, the stuff they wrote on was extremely expensive. So you couldn't just go back and like fix things. So when Paul's like, I'm glad I never baptized anyone while I was there. Well, wait, I did baptize that guy. Well, and those two people. But other than that, I didn't baptize anyone. That's what I mean when I say that there's stuff in the Bible that is true. I don't mean that there's untruth in the Bible. What I'm talking about is 
God was cooperating with a human person. And this is something we need to understand that God has always done and will always do. God is always working through and with human beings to accomplish his purpose, even the Bible. The Bible is God's gift through the church to the church. God didn't just, you know, God didn't just drop a, a, a finished manuscript down onto the, onto the, he wasn't like, oh, like Mr. Bean. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, <clears throat> it's not like that. God didn't, I look like him. <laughs> can you make the faces? I would love it. What we should, we should reenact some Mr. Bean scenes <laughs> with you. But <clears throat> that would be fun. But. Anybody know what I'm talking about? At the beginning of Mr. Bean, like he just like drops down in a in a there's this like light that turns on and then he just like flops onto the ground. Anyway. God didn't that's not how the Bible came to us. The Bible didn't come to us already pre-done and pre-packaged in a you know in a in a plastic bag where God was like, I'm gonna trust you with this now. Gotta say that, right? I'm gonna trust you with this right there. Make sure you get that to the right people. That's not how it worked. It was a cooperation. It was a dance. It was a process. It was a thing. And because of that, the Bible's very human. And ready? It's very imperfect. But it's perfect in its imperfection. Because God was doing what God always does is that God always acts like himself. And God never acts in a way that is contrary to his nature to accomplish something he wants to accomplish, even if it means he has to go the long, long way around. Wouldn't, don't you think it would have been nicer if God could have accomplished the salvation of all humankind without becoming a human and walking through a human life as a man of sorrows and then being killed on a cross? Don't you think if God could have done that just by going, that that's what he would have done? But he couldn't do that. Because if he had tried to force something on us like that, it would have been nothing like him. God always acts like himself, including in the writing of the scriptures. And so God used inspiration to write the Bible. He didn't just dictate it to a human author, which is why I have a problem with the way that, that the JBQ card describes it. Now I realize JBQ students are, are elementary kids, and that wouldn't really fit on one of those little cards. And it's a, <laughs> but, and it's a TBQ well, either still, that's 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 a long. This is a this is a nuanced, complex, nitty gritty, dirty reality, which is why it's good. That's why it's good. God always gets his hands dirty. That's just who he is. We wouldn't have had the gospel if Jesus didn't come down and be a man. We wouldn't have had any of it. We wouldn't have had salvation at all. Jesus had to become a man. Not because there was some outside force saying, if you don't do this, then they won't be saved. No, 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 no. But Jesus was seeking to accomplish the full salvation of, of mankind. And the only, the only way he could properly do it was by becoming a man, by showing us who the Father is, by living a sinless life, by dying a death upon the cross and then raising from the dead and ascending into heaven. That's the only way that our salvation could have been accomplished God's way. Now, he could have done it. Which is what, by the way, have you ever thought about the temptations in the, de in the desert? Jesus goes off into the desert. Some of those ideas weren't bad ideas, now were they? Some of those are pretty good ideas. Hey, Jesus, if you want some notoriety, let me tell you what's going to happen. If you just jump off the top of the temple and then get caught by angels at the bottom. 
What do you think? And Jesus was like, you don't understand me, and you are trying to get me to do things in a way that's not God's way, and I'm not going to do it, Satan, so you can just shut up. Thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. Ha ha! Satan's like, dang it. Because he was trying to tempt Jesus into being something other than a perfect representation of his father. And then what was the final temptation, the greatest one, the most scary one? Hey, Jesus. Here's all the kingdoms of the earth. They are mine. Satan could say that because it was true. Bow down and worship me. I'll just give them to you. No need to go to the cross. No need to go walk through all this stuff. You can have them. Anybody a Lord of the Rings fan? Woo! Nobody? Big Lord oh. of the Rings and Hobbits. Okay. This is the exact same picture of Galadriel. And Frodo offers her the ring. You remember in the movie? When she's like, I will not lie and say that my heart has not desired this thing. And she's like in place of the Dark Lord. And then she just like becomes bright and crazy. She's like, you would have a queen, right? It's like this crazy thing. And, and, and Frodo's like, ah, right? And it's because that was, that was the temptation. If she had taken the ring of power, she could have defeated Sauron. And she could have done all of these things. But she couldn't do it. Why? Because the ring is evil. And it doesn't matter. In the end, nothing would have been saved. The ring is a picture of worldly power. Of power through threat of force and violence. Power enforced by death. That's what the ring is. Tolkien was a Christian man. And he was showing us he was putting this thing out here the ring that the threat of death and we have a choice we can rule by love or we can rule by threat rule by love requires our own death requires that we don't grab hold of the threat of force but that we let the threat of force die and we operate in a different way a way that lets everyone be free rather than brings everyone under control Jesus did the same thing. Do you think Jesus couldn't have called down an angel army, pulled out his gigantic sword, and walked through the nations of the earth saying, follow the God of Israel or else I will smite thee? We would have had Jesus the Great. We would have had the greatest empire of all time. We would have had the, the you know, and that's the Messiah that the Jewish people wanted too. They wanted, they wanted a Jesus the Great kind of Messiah. Jesus is like, I'm not going to be that. And he looked at Pilate and he said, no, 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 my kingdom isn't, the kind, isn't your kind of kingdom. Because if it was your kind of kingdom, they'd be fighting to set me free. No, 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 my kind of kingdom is the kind of kingdom that would rather die than kill its enemies. The Bible is inspired. I'm getting off the track here. It's a dance between men and God. But that's why I went there, because that's how God operates. God has to operate his own way. And when we begin to read the Bible, we need to understand that God is being God in cooperation with human beings. And that is why we have this book that's in front of us. All right, let's keep moving, because... <laughs> We're almost out of time. That was just number one. Okay, number two, exegesis. And this is the most important one. Exegesis. Anybody know what that word means? E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. Exe. E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. Exegesis. 
exe g-e-s-i-s exegesis in Bible school they told me we do exegesis so we don't get extra Jesus Hey, what is, I am a big fan of puns, however. I read one that I really loved the, this, this week. You ready? <laughs> ready for the groaner of the day? It's my, I just, dad jokes. I'm a dad. What do you want from me? You're, this, it's just going to happen. What is a dentist's favorite hymn? Crown him with many crowns. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, that's awesome. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's funny. Okay, <clears throat> exegesis. Here's, the, here's what exegesis is. It is the process by which we figure out what the text meant originally. What did the author, what was the author attempting to communicate? What did it mean when they wrote it down? Okay, that means I don't get to bring and put a meaning on top of it that I brought with me. That means that I don't get to I don't I I, I don't get to oh, proof texting some I mean I've been doing it all day but proof texting drives me crazy. You don't the Bible doesn't serve your ideas, you serve the Bible's ideas, which is why I like to preach verse by verse because then I'm not preaching on a topic and using these scriptures to prove that I'm right. I'd rather preach verse by verse where I can unpack what's being said inch by inch, verse by verse, and I can teach, I can serve the Bible's ideas rather than the Bible's ideas serving me. Are you with me? Exegesis is, is the process by which we figure out what the person that wrote it was trying to say. And it's massively important. When we're looking at a text, we always need to be asking, what were they saying at the time? Because that's what it still means. Well, hermeneutics is about preaching. You have to do exegesis before you can do a hermeneutic. Yeah, you have to exegete. And then whatever you got from your exegesis, you can then you know, use as a hermeneutic. Okay? But... Yes, exegesis comes first because it's the process by which we figure out what the author intended to say. Okay, and I've got, there's four pieces to that. Number one is the author. Who was the author? You need to know as much as you can know about who the author was. One of the ways that we study specific uh, words Word studies in the Bible are absolutely fascinating and very helpful if you do them correctly. Okay, because the way that the best way to do a study on a specific word that's being used is not to take that word and go look at a Greek lexicon. No, no, I mean, yeah, you should probably do that at some point. A lexicon is a dictionary, by the way. The best way to understand how that word is being used is to see how that author has used that word in other places. Because if they used it that way over here, it probably means the same thing here. Are you with me? 
Because different words mean different things when they're spoken by different people. Okay, let's use the word gay. I'm currently reading Anne of Green Gables to my daughter. And they use the word gay all the time in that book. And I always change it to happy. Because she has a different understanding of the word gay. Right? Same word. Completely different meanings. Yeah, because words change their meanings over time. That's what happens. So if I'm reading something written by John, and I see a word, and I say, that Greek word, when John used that Greek word, I want to know how he used it other places in the book of John, other places in Johannine writings. That's what we call John's writings. So I go look, I'll look at the way he used that word elsewhere in the book of John, and I'll look at other places in first, second, and third John, see if I can find it there, and I'll look in the book of Revelation. Where else has John used this word? And that should give me some perspective on what that word means. The problem is there's a lot of words that are only used once in the Bible. And in that case, then we have to do some other, we have to do some. <clears throat> oh, I skipped one. Language, the original language. Duh, we talked about this last week. But the New Testament's written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. You need to understand that what you are reading is a translation of a, of a different language, and not just a different language, but a different language from 2,000 years ago and more. This is part of the four under two? Yes. Okay. This is all under exegesis. Right. Language, author. It's a different language. You need to understand that. And there's tons of tools everywhere that's going to help you figure out, uh, you know, the, what that word meant in the original language. I, I was listening to a Bible Project podcast on the way here, and they were talking about uh, Exodus chapter 37, where it says in, that God is slow to anger. And in the Hebrew, the actual language is he is long-nosed. Because it's an idiom. It's a turn of phrase. It's like under the weather or a rule of thumb where words mean completely different things than they actually mean. And so we have to unpack it even more. What on earth do they mean by that? The language, important, absolutely massively important because it can change everything. Go back to the original language. Okay. The audience. Who was this author writing to? under exegesis audience who was he writing to and the next one is why the purpose what's the purpose for which this was written okay, in the book of hebrews that's massively necessary that you understand who was written to and why it was written it's true everywhere but the more i'm, I'm in the middle of studying hebrews right now with my church and oh my gosh if i didn't understand who this was written to and why i would completely misconstrue a lot of texts in this book and it has been done many times over my whole over the whole of Christian history where they have not understood the audience and therefore not understood what the author was trying to say. Audience makes all the difference. And finally, under author, I'm not done under ex Jesus, there's two more after this. <clears throat> Yourself. 
What perspectives, paradigms, worldviews are you bringing with you when you read the text? Who are you identifying with in the story? For instance, most of the Old Testament is written about the, Isra the people of Israel, correct? When you read the book of Exodus, who do you identify with? In the Exodus narrative, when Moses is taking the people out of slavery, who do you identify with in the book? When you're reading, you're like, you put yourself in their place. Moses, right? Or the people of Israel, right? Okay, here's the problem. Here's the real problem. We're nothing like Moses, and we're nothing like the people of Israel, because we're not slaves. We're not under oppression in a place of slavery. We're the Egyptians. We belong to an empire that is at the height of its power. We're much more like the Egyptians than we are like the Israelites. That's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? But it's true. But when you begin to read stuff that God said to the Israelites and take that on as God saying that to me as an American, you're going to miss, there's a whole lot of stuff you're going to, God said this to them at that time because they were in the situation they were in. And if you're not careful, you're going to do that. We need to understand who was the audience. We also need to understand who we are and what we're bringing with us into the text. Finally, the final one for exegesis is genre. What kind of literature am I reading? Is this a poem? Is this meant to be taken literally? There's a whole lot in the scripture, and people are going to, I take the Bible literally, you do. That's a problem for some of the Bible. Okay, there's some of the Bible we should not take literally. Like for instance, the psalm where it says, Oh God, I pray that you take the Babylonians' babies and smash their heads on the rocks. That's in the psalms, by the way. It's there. Now, are they serious? Do they really want to see Babylonian babies' heads smashed on rocks? Is that something? Should we start doing that as a church activity? <laughs> I don't think so. I'm sorry, but I don't think so. Okay? There's a ton... But the Psalms aren't literal. They are poems, songs. If you know what genre of literature you're in, you can all of a sudden begin to understand that this isn't meant to be taken literally. This is figurative. There's other places which should be much, which are going to be much more difficult, and Genesis is one of them. This is where I get myself in big trouble. Because Genesis is a song. It's a poem, especially the first few chapters of Genesis. If you read the way it's written in the original Hebrew, it is a poem. That's why things are repeated over and over again, like, and it was good. The first couple chapters of Genesis need to be understood figuratively, not literally. I know, I know. Whoever, you know, you're like, I have my season pass to the Creation Museum, and you can just throw something at me. Fine, do so. You can disagree with me. You are more than welcome to do so. But I am trying to, I, but, but most Bible scholars are in agreement with me here that the first couple chapters of Genesis, I'm not saying they're not true. I'm not saying God didn't create the universe. What I'm saying is that's a song. Yes. That, that is a song? Yes. That's interesting. I can see that, but... I'm it is a song. Like, how was that the 
when Moses wrote Genesis was that his Did Moses intent, write Genesis? I thought Moses wrote Genesis. Uh, That's a tradition that he did, but we don't know that he did. Uh, well, um, whoever wrote Genesis. Right. It doesn't, it's um, not important. Did they intend for that to be a song? That's or? the important question. What were they trying to do? And when you're asking that question from the beginning, then your interpretation and your exegesis becomes much easier. When you, when you know what the author was attempting to accomplish, then you can take from the text what the text is trying to give you and not take from the text what the text is not trying to give you. For instance, the text of Genesis is not attempting to give you a scientific explanation for the beginning of the universe. That is not the intent of the author. That's not the intent of the... They didn't even know what science was. They had no concept of history like, like, like we do now. This was a song. It was meant to be taught to children to teach us that God created everything. Isn't that exciting, kids? God created everything because that's the truth. It is not meant to tell us how he created it. Genesis is also a song that is written specifically to stand next to other creation narratives that existed in the culture from other gods to show how our God is radically different than the other gods that exist around us. So, but we don't read it in that context because we're not paying attention. So um, since that's meant to be a song, I'm now looking at it as a song. So the days that God created the universe and what he created, so was that what the author was maybe his rough guess of what was going on in that day. Um, You're still thinking of it wrong. Okay. Um, You're still not thinking of it as a song. You're, th you're still trying to make it tell you exactly what happened on what day and how it happened. And that's not the point. Okay. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's, that's not the point. The point is God created all this thing. On the first day, he created the light and separated from the darkness. On the second day. Okay, that's, that's, it's like, it's, it's not supposed to be like a journalistic account of the creation of the universe. And then I was standing next to God and God said, let there be light. And so I wrote it down. No, that's not, that's not it. That's not what this is. And one glance it will tell you that because the creation story is told two times right next to each other. Including the creation of man. God created, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Da, 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 da. God created man, human, male and female. He created them. And then it goes back and says, in the beginning of the world was without word and void. It's, what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What happened? So there have been people that have actually taken that and said, God created the world twice. He created it once, destroyed it, and then recreated it. Where are you getting that? No, the point is this. What Genesis is trying to do is tell us that God created the world and tell us the kind of God he is and tell us what God created the world for. And the answer is you. He created the world for you so that you and him could live together in a place. That's all we're supposed to get from that part of the story. And we can go on and talk about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and all that kind of stuff and how literal it should be taken. But well, we're not going to do that right now because we're out of time. I'm going to name the other three things that we need to talk, that, and then we'll be done. Genre is absolutely key and important, and when we understand what the author was trying to do, then we will understand how to interpret the text. 
Okay, and this is something you all need to understand. This is a part of the genre discussion. The Bible is not going to tell us everything about everything. There's not enough room. The Bible is not going to tell us everything about everything. The Bible tells us what it wants to tell us. We have to take what it's giving and not try and get it to give us something it's not trying to give. So where the Bible is silent, we should be silent. So how did God create the universe? I have no idea. And neither do you, and neither does the guy that built the Creation Museum. We don't know. Because the Bible doesn't tell us that, it wasn't trying to tell us that. Are the seven days meant to be taken literally? I don't know. That's a really great phrase that we all need to learn. I don't know. What I do know, God created the universe. Our God is radically different than the other gods that were being served around there at that time. And he created it for us so we could dwell together with him and be his image bearers. That's what I know. That's what those first few chapters of Genesis are trying to tell me, and that's what I know. Beyond that, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, context is king. That's Okay, we're done with exegesis. Context is king, number three. Context is king. Do not read a verse without reading what becomes before and what comes after it, especially if you're going to use it in a sermon or whatever, because the context means everything. Okay? Have you ever heard the story about the guy that was like, oh, God, I don't know what to do. And he just flops open his Bible and he goes, boom. And it says, and Judas went out and hung himself. I don't know how I feel about that, God. So he closes his Bible and opens it again and puts his finger down, boom. And it says, go ye and do likewise. Is that how we read the Bible? No, that is reading the Bible without context. And that will get us to do really stupid things and come to really stupid conclusions. Do not read the Bible without, out of context. Context is king. If you want to know what a verse reads, what a verse means, read before it, and for goodness sake, read after it. Please. Please. Because a whole lot of really dumb theological ideas have come from the, 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 the place where we're like, we read one sentence in the Bible and we're like, wow. Well, obviously that's true, because it's in the Bible. Context is king. Number four, Jesus perfectly revealed the Father. We already talked about that. The Bible is a unified story that leads us to Jesus, guys. Je let Jesus be your rabbi. If what you're hearing from the Bible does not look like Jesus, you probably need to go back and read some more. Okay, and the final one. 2,000 years of church history. You're not the first people to read this book. 2,000 years of people reading, discussing, praying, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal himself. 2,000 years of church history. We must not, should not, cannot ignore 2,000 years of church history. Pay attention. Some of the ideas that you have about the Bible and about God are like a hundred years old. For instance, this is going to be my whipping boy all year long, a pre-tribulation rapture was never once thought of until about 150 years ago when a 13-year-old girl had a dream that Jesus was going to come before the tribulation. She went to her pastor and he said, 
that's an interesting idea, went back to the scripture, did no exegesis, and tried and came up with this brilliant idea called the pre-tribulation rapture that we're all excited about and writing books left behind books about, woo, we're going before anything bad happens. But if you go back to the scripture and you really look, it ain't there. This is my personal opinion. I do not speak for the assemblies of God in this matter. <laughs> no. I am on record with the AG. When I, when I, when I went for my ordination interview, I looked at Chad McAtee across the table, and he goes, is there anything you disagree with the assemblies of God on? I said, where do I start? No, oh. no I'm kidding. I didn't. I said, I said, the only really major issue that, you, that I think you'll have an issue with about me is that I am not a pre-tribulation rapture guy. Well, Pastor Chad looked at me and said, and where are you getting this idea? And I, very with attitude and cheekiness, said, the Bible. <laughs> Which I shouldn't have said, and I felt bad. I was like, I'm sorry. That was a horrible way to respond. I said, I've studied this, this in depth. If you would like me to bring out my scriptural understanding of the rapture, and how I, I can do that for you, but I don't think we have time right now. He goes, all right, you're fine. And then they ordained me anyway. Because it's not a key issue. If I had told them that Jesus was the brother of Michael the Archangel or something stupid like that, then they would have been like, "Yeah, we don't think so." Um, <laughs> you're gonna have to go find gonna, the Latter Day Saints church is down the road. <clears throat> All right, that's it. Yeah. The main ones. My five main points: the Bible is inspired. Do exegesis. Context is king. Jesus perfectly revealed the Father. And don't forget that we have 2,000 years of church history. I have spent a ton of time in the last 10 years or so reading things that were written before, uh, before the Reformation. Specifically things that were written within a few hundred years of Jesus. The early church fathers. And they have radically changed the way that I view the Bible, radically changed the way that I view Jesus, and radically changed my theology. I'd probably have a lot more to say to Chad McAtee if we were talking today. True, though. True. But I know AG, I, I, I will tell you when I'm straying off the AG path a wee bit. Like that whole thing about Genesis, yeah, they wouldn't agree with me on that at all. They just wouldn't. They, the assemblies of God. What? They might say that, but they would say it still needs to be taken literally. I can't do it. I just can't. I can't. I can't in good conscience misread the Bible. I just can't. I'm sorry, but that's where I'm at. Yeah. So for someone who's seeking certification, like Augustine, yes. Yeah. Is it better to just and say no? I think everything you guys should read is really good. There are, in that interview. There are 16 fundamental truths that you have to be able to say. If you can do that in good, in good conscience, then you're okay. I can't, and I can. No, I know, I'm saying. In, oh, yeah, no, I well, wouldn't. I tell them, hey, if, I, if I, <laughs> the only reason that I said that to him is because he asked me point blank, is there anything that you, we are in disagreement on? 
That's the only, well, that was for ordination. They didn't ask me that at the, at the licensing level. The initial physical evidence of the, yes, right. As long as you're pretty good. I would so like two out of 16, I think. Here's the issue. You can't pay your tithe. Well, the, <laughs> here's, the, here's the deal, okay? I've, I've looked around because more and more I'm getting uncomfortable. I am. And I've looked around. And I, the reason I'm a part of a denomination is, is so that I have men and women who are looking over my shoulder and paying attention to my life and saying, and calling me to account. And, you know, that, that I have some oversight and some cover. That's why I'm a part of a denomination. I also love them, and they're my moms and dads, right? Literally, but also, fig also figuratively. They're, these are people that have poured much into my life, and I want to honor that by staying in, in, in fellowship with them. Uh, I also feel like I'm a missionary to the assemblies, <laughs> in a way, uh, about a lot of things. And I'll leave when they kick me out, but not before. That's when I, and that day may come. Uh, oh, it may, it may come. But I will let you know when I am straying from, I will say this to you, I'm always going to tell you where I'm at because I want you to know where I'm at on an issue, on a topic, whatever. I will tell you when I'm not in full alignment with, what, with the Assemblies of God. I will let you know. Because at the end of the day, you need to get in this book and you need to get with the Holy Spirit and you need to figure out where you can be in good conscience, can I be a part of this denomination when they're making this much of a big deal about a minor gift of the Holy Spirit? What's, the, what's their big deal about the minor gift? Tongues is the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I feel like that's not biblically clear. I know the verses they would point to. I know the things that they would say. Yeah. I do believe tongues is... Available to all believers. I'm, I'm there. Sure. Okay. But I think when we major on that, we're missing the most important sign that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and that is that we are begin to be formed in the image of Christ. And we have power to witness. Yeah. These are the things that the Bible says the Holy Spirit in filling is about. Not tongues. Tongues is a minor little sidebar issue but it was a part of what caused the Pentecostal movement to separate from the rest of the church, yeah. which is why it's still a big deal. Yeah. I have some issues with the way the AG deals with alcohol as well, but I don't drink. And I still speak in tongues every day. <laughs> really. It's actually a part of my spiritual practice. I intentionally speak in tongues for at least five to 10 minutes a day. We're way over time, guys. Anyway, I love you all. If you have questions, I'm, I'll be here for a few minutes. Otherwise, I'll just...